Good morning, everyone. My name is Stephen. I have the pleasure of serving as lead pastor here. Uh, we are continuing in our series on the Gospel of Mark, looking at the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. And one of the big questions that kind of comes up again and again in Mark's Gospel that he's trying to get us to hone in on is, who is this? And that actually is one of the central questions, if not the central question of faith. How you answer that question says everything about whether you will worship Jesus as Lord, as God of God, light of light, true God from true God in the words of the Nicene Creed, or whether you will think of Jesus as simply a wise teacher who shined a little bit of a light on the mystery of God. We've seen that question come up again again a few times, a couple answers to that question. When Jesus goes home to his hometown, they they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the the carpenter? He can't be, right? I mean, don't we know his brothers and sisters? And then earlier in chapter 6, after beheading John the Baptist, Herod starts to hear rumblings about this teacher that is making his way and making a name for himself out in the wilderness. And so he takes an opinion poll about who Jesus is. And some of his advisors say, well, he's Elijah. Others say, he's one of the prophets of old. And for his own part, Herod decides to go with, no, no, he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Because guilty conscience and all. But today we see the the rumblings of a very particular category that people wanted to put Jesus in, and that's the category of Messiah, God's anointed who would be a military and political leader, someone like Moses who would lead them out of oppression into freedom, someone like David who would shepherd them and be a warrior king. And so if you have your Bibles or a mobile device, I want to invite you to follow along. We are back in Mark in chapter 6, verses 32 through 44. We are coming right after the spot where Jesus uh, pulls his disciples away and offers them a chance to get some rest. Let us hear what the Spirit is saying to us this morning. So Jesus and his disciples went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving, they recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go out to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than a half year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. 
He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus, we ask this morning that you would be our good shepherd, that in your word we would grasp the joy of your kingdom, and that in hearing and doing what it is that you call us to hear and do, we would be your faithful disciples. We pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, how many of you are old enough to remember a flannel board? Yeah, a few of you. Flannel board. I just I remember Miss uh, Whitley's bony fingers moving across, and that's really all I remember about it. Well, back in the day, if you don't remember, uh, Sunday school teachers used to take up a large board and put it up on an easel, and it was covered with flannel. And then the teacher would tell a, a Bible story of some sort, you know, taking out the cloth cutouts of Bible characters and arranging them on the board as a way of kind of telling the story. Uh, there were always a few like palm trees and camels in the background just kind of hanging out. Well, and this morning's reading was a flannel board story, if ever there was one, right? I mean, it's heartfelt, it's, it's wholesome. Jesus makes lunch for everybody, right? And the grass is green, it's, it's spring, everyone's out there dining al fresco. It's not, I mean, you can almost see the, the white and red checkerboard, you know, tablecloths out there. Everyone has enough, more than enough. So, you know... Happy story, happy ending. Let's put the flannel pieces back in the box, close in prayer. Or is there actually more to the story? Well, I mentioned at the beginning of this series that there are always three narrative threads kind of running around in Mark's gospel. There is the theological story of the new creation, uh, about God's creation in the beginning and the new creation that all of heaven and earth are going toward that Jesus came to usher in. And then there is the story of Israel where, where God chose a people to be the manifestation of God's desire for shalom, for a just and righteous nation, for uh, his kingdom ruling every sphere of the earth. And those two stories interact with the story of Rome, in which imperial power is wedded to the forces of destruction and anti-creation that are let loose on the world. And Jesus entered into the world, became incarnate, When Rome's story and Israel's story were colliding, the people were desperate for a political and a military leader who would lead them into this new creation. So to give you a sense of the stakes, I'm going to give you a three and a half minute history lesson. You can time me on this if you want to. All right, in and around the time of Jesus, there were four major military conflicts uh, between Israel and occupying powers. And the first of those was in 167 BC. That was when a country priest named Mattathias uh, harnessed all of the national resentment toward the Seleucid Empire. These were people who had come in, made the people learn Greek and not Hebrew. They put Greek religious symbols all over the temple. They outlawed practices like Sabbath and temple sacrifice and circumcision, these things that were central to Israel's identity. Well, Mattathias, he, he assembled this army of guerrilla fighters who came to be known as the Maccabees or the hammers. 
really cool nickname. And although these guys were outnumbered nine to one, they were a scrappy bunch of people. They, they managed to drive out the enemy. And when they came back into town victorious and they did their victory march, people waved palm branches and shouted, Hosanna, which means God saves. File that in your memory bank. Well, at the end of the celebration, they reconsecrated the temple. They secured religious freedom for Israel for a couple hundred years. And so the Maccabees, they were like these national heroes. They, they, they had this place in the popular imagination of what God's Messiah was going to be. He was going to be a, a strong political leader. He was going to be, uh, you know, have this, this zeal for the Lord. A righteous person would be able to mount an army and defeat their enemies. Well, in 63 BC, a new world power came onto the stage in the form of the Roman general Pompey, who captured Jerusalem without even much of a fight. He established Roman rule in the area, and he did this by installing a leader who would be loyal to Rome. So Herod the Great, who was the king when Jesus was born, he was actually the sixth generation in the Maccabean line, got into the family through marriage. And he was a shrewd politician who played up to Rome, and he kept Israel kind of numb to the reality that they were an occupied people. They had their freedom to worship, but they were taxed heavily, and they were frequently conscripted in to join in in Rome's building projects, wherever they would come unto. That is the world that Jesus was born into. And so all throughout Jesus' lifetime, there were these pockets of insurgencies. There, were these, there was this unrest. There was this seething resentment always beneath the surface. Uh, Rome didn't really interfere with, with Israel too much, aside from the things that I just mentioned, the taxation, the, the labor. But the people, they started to just get fed up. And so there was this group of uh, freedom fighters, these knife-wielding assassins known as the Zikari, and they, their strategy was they would blend into a crowd, and then when a, a Roman official or somebody who was sympathetic to Rome came by, they would jump out of the crowd, stab them, and blend back into the crowd. And this happened quite frequently. So things were super, super tense. And where do you suppose this hotbed of political and military insurgency was in Israel? A place called Galilee. That is where the freedom fighters, that is where the apocalyptic warriors, that's where they tended to hang out. Uh, Jesus' disciple, Simon the Zealot, may very well have been one of these people. And uh, Levi, the tax collector, would have been his sworn enemy, somebody that he wanted to kill. So you got to wonder how that worked out, right? Like, were they bunkmates in the journey? Well, fast forward to AD 66, when a full-scale war against Rome breaks out. But this time, Israel loses. Uh, Roman forces drive out all of the rebels from Galilee. They sack Jerusalem. And in the most imperial of flexes, they destroy the temple that Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilt. Some 70 years later, the resentment pops up again. And uh, people begin to put their hope in another Messiah, but the revolution fails again. Only this time, Jews were expelled out of Jerusalem, even those who had refused to take up arms against Rome because they worshipped a different Messiah. So all of that is the background going into Mark chapter 6. So maybe what the gospel is describing is not a nice little potluck in the park. 
Maybe it's the beginning of a revolution. The only thing is, it's not the kind of revolution that anyone was counting on. It's one that Jesus brings about through the teaching of his word, through the breaking of bread and teaching his disciples to do the same. So Jesus is out with his disciples and he tells them that they're going to go off on retreat, only it doesn't turn out how they had planned. They get in the boat uh, to get away from a crowd, only to find a larger crowd waiting for them. And this crowd is hungry in every sense of the word. They are hungry for a leader. They are hungry for hope. They are hungry for food. And Jesus' reaction to this crowd of 5,000 men is striking. I mean, after all, Jesus is tired himself. He's grieving the death of his friend, his cousin John the Baptist. He needs rest. But these people, they come with needs. And I don't know about you, but if it's, if it's me, and, and I'm running in the red, when I am depleted, when I am worn, when tension in the air is rising, and I just need to get away, the last thing I am is interruptible. But when Jesus sees the crowd, he sees the need. His response is not exasperation. His response is compassion, a willingness to, to stand in their place. But you've got to wonder, 5,000 men show up in a desolate wilderness in the place where political and military revolutionaries tended to hang out. They are looking for Jesus. Let's just say they're not in town for a golf tournament. Mark's only hint that he gives about this, about the crowd's mindset, comes at the very end of the story. And he says that Jesus withdrew. But John's gospel fills in the picture and tells us why. John says this, Jesus knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again by a mountain, to a mountain by himself. So these guys were there to make Jesus the leader of their revolution. Resentment is starting to boil over. Herod has just killed John the Baptist, a, a righteous man who was respected and loved by the people, killed by an incestuous king at a drunken dinner party. This is the one who's supposed to be on David's throne? Well, no wonder they were looking for another. So Jesus shows up to those who are beleaguered, who are hungry for justice, hungry for God's righteousness to break into the world, hungry for the world to be made right, for it to be restored. And they see in him a leader who can get, get them where they want to go. And Jesus sees them and his heart breaks because they are like a sheep without a shepherd. It's a very vivid image that, that uh, Mark describes. And we're meant to hear in it these, these pastoral overtones of, of uh, Psalm 23, of quiet waters, of green pastures. David was every bit a shepherd and a king. But the words are actually a direct callback to Moses, who at the very end of his life asks God to give the people a new leader as they are gathered in the wilderness. And Numbers 27 puts it like this. Moses said to the Lord, 
May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them. One who will lead them out and bring them in so the Lord's people will not be like a sheep without a shepherd. And the way that God answers that prayer is with the person of Joshua, who is a military and political leader who brings the people into the land of promise. And David was a shepherd when he defeated Goliath and he became Israel's very image of what a king should be like. These are the stories that are foundational to Israel's life. And all this is to say that the idea of a divinely empowered warrior is loaded into the background of Israel's concept of a shepherd as a leader. And so here we have Jesus and these people in the wilderness and Jesus is the good shepherd. Which makes his response in verse 34 all the more strange. How does he respond to this need for a revolutionary leader? Well, he begins to teach them many things. This is how Jesus pours out his compassion to the crowd by talking about the kingdom. And you can imagine the kind of collision of expectations. The, the people are seeking him out. They're, they're looking for strategy. They're, they're looking for someone to lead them, somebody to inspire them, somebody who's going to train them how to lead an army to conquer their enemies and drive out their oppressors. And Jesus proclaims the kingdom. And he trains his disciples to break bread and to give it away. That is Jesus' response to the deep needs of a leaderless crowd to teach them to break bread and to show his disciples how to do that. He doesn't bring in liberation by banging the drums of war. He does it by making his kingdom known. Now the teaching part of Jesus, like that's not anything new. We've seen him do that all throughout his life. His teaching is, is how he describes what he came to do. He does it everywhere he goes. He teaches with authority. When he speaks, the, the kingdom of God is, is made near. But the bread piece, like what's going on with that? To us, bread is either something you love or something you avoid. It is either yummy joy-inducing, life-giving carbohydrates. Or for my keto brothers and sisters, it is useless, death-bringing, empty calories. No judgment. I mean, I pray for you, but I don't judge. But I mean, that, that's kind of the extent of the symbolism for us, right? Well, for a first century Jew, on the other hand, bread was the staple. It, was the, it, it could be the difference between life and death. And we, we hear this story, and we tend to think of the two fish as kind of like the main course, and the bread just kind of fills in, rounds it out. But it was not uncommon for people of that day to only have as their diet a single loaf of barley bread for a day. And so in giving bread, Jesus is giving life to people. In, in giving his word and in giving bread, he is saying, this is why I am here. I am here to give you life. That is what his message of the kingdom is, the hope that is coming into the world. And all throughout the gospel, Jesus uses this kind of metaphor uh, for his, his teaching as bread. 
when he's in the wilderness and the tempter comes up, he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then in John 6, he, he tells those who come to him, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so he gives them bread that will feed their bodies. But he is way more interested in the bread that will feed their souls. What he is really after is that hunger that is always there deeper than the physical. That hunger for something more. That, some, that hunger for something real. Something that will last. That kind of hunger that if you don't deal with it, no matter how well fed you are, you will never be satisfied. Maybe you know what that hunger is like. You feel it when life hasn't gone how you thought it would or should. Uh, that job that you had that was supposed to give you an identity, but instead only has you feeling empty and stressed and burned out. Or that retirement that you thought was going to be your liberation has only freed you up to chain you to one pursuit after another. You know that emptiness when the, the promises that you made on your wedding day feel more like an aspiration than like a lived reality. Or maybe you've had that hunger come about because you have been wounded by a church. What you hoped was going to help you see the kingdom of God come forth in living color has just felt like one bad committee meeting after another. And so you turn to other things to fill the void. You turn to, to drinking or, or to activism, anything you can to make the, the void smaller. You, you throw yourself into a hobby or, or into a vice that makes you feel alive at night, but then just has you feeling empty and, and mournful in the morning. Or, or maybe it's just buying a whole lot of stuff, anything to make the hunger stop, but it just keeps getting stronger. French mathematician Blaise Pascal captures that gnawing emptiness really well. He, he describes it as a craving, a hunger that, that bears this empty trace of satisfaction. And we go through life trying to fill the void with temporary things. But these are all inadequate, he writes, because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. There is this hunger for transcendence, for beauty, for, for goodness that the soul longs for more than experience can deliver, more than bread can fill. And Jesus says that if that emptiness is not filled by me, you are always just going to be hungry. And so he gives them his word. And then he gives them bread. And it's not just any kind of bread that he gives them, but it's the kind of bread that shows the people that he is way more than just a revolutionary leader. It's a miracle. But I got to say, as miracles go, this one is actually pretty unassuming. There's no hint in Mark's gospel that the crowd has any idea what has happened here. And the way that Mark tells the story, the miracles are never about the miracles in and of themselves anyway. Jesus does not go around with some sort of marketing director blowing people's minds with spectacle. You know, he's not like out at the party doing these cool tricks, you know, or, or calling down fire from heaven to impress people. He's not seeking fame. 
And with the exception of his disciples, whenever a miracle happens, he is always telling people to keep it under wraps, to, as if Jesus' point is to draw people away from the fact that he has power to do miracles and to draw their attention toward what purpose does this miracle serve. And I think this is something that postmodern readers of the Bible, we, we tend to miss a lot. We tend to think that the the miracles, the healings, the supernatural powers, well, these have to be Jesus' answer to the the problem of pain and suffering in a broken world. But no, Jesus' answer to the pain and suffering of the world are not the miracles, it is the cross and the resurrection. So what if every healing, every feeding, every taming of chaotic elements, every, every instance of taming the demonic forces, all of them are meant to point back to what God intends in creation. God's desire at the very beginning to this reality when bodies did not go blind, when legs did not lose the ability to stand, when the tormented were flourishing, when creation itself was not groaning. But what if they're also meant to point toward the day when all those things will be renewed? What if Jesus' miracles give us a glimpse of the world as it is meant to be and provide direction and hope for how it will be? You see, because God is not any more satisfied with hunger and poverty and disease and injustice than we are. Jesus' miracles are a window into what God intends to do about them. I love how the theologian Jürgen Moltmann puts it. He says, Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. So things like death and decay and poverty and entropy and abuse, these are unnatural suspensions of God's desire for shalom. And Jesus' miracles are always a sign of the renewal that is on the way. Right, so how does this feeding of these people out in the middle of the desert point toward God's hope for renewal? Well, Jesus hosts a meal where everyone is satisfied and where there is more than enough. Even more than enough for his tired, reluctant disciples. This is a future that we cannot manufacture or bring about by force. It's something only Jesus can do. And while we cannot bring the future into the present, by God's grace, Jesus tells his disciples, you get to participate in this. You can imagine this whole thing took a bit of time, right? I mean, these 5,000 people, they're, they're out there, they're, they're coming from all over the place. There's this kind of mounting sense of anticipation that something's going to go down. Jesus and his disciples, they're in a boat, they get to shore. It takes probably a little bit of time to figure out what it is that the crowd wants. And then Jesus teaches them many things, which I think is Mark's way of saying Jesus went on for a while. And all the while, the disciples are somewhere in the background hanging out, right? And you can imagine they're tired, right? Like they are probably a little impatient. They're at the end of a hard week. Jesus promised them rest. And then he just bails on them because he's all compassionate and whatever. And so after a while, they start to tell Jesus what to do about it. Look, we're in the middle of nowhere. It's late. 
send these people away so they can get some food and we can get on with our retreat. I mean, it's clear that they do not want to be there. And then you can imagine from their perspective, Jesus gives them a totally irrational response. You feed them. And there's a little bit more of a, than a hint of protest in their reaction. You want us to spend eight months of wages on this lot. You want us to buy food for these people. Have you lost your mind, Jesus? This is impossible. Which, of course, is Jesus' point. Because in spite of all that they have seen him do, in spite of all the things that they have just done through his power and in his name, Jesus knows that they are only going to get so fixed on their own perspective, on their own shortcomings, their own limitations. They're going to only see what they do not have and not see who he is. But even here, Jesus is compassionate and Jesus is patient. I mean, he could have just thrown up his hands and done it for them. I think of that scene in The Empire Strikes Back, naturally, where, where Yoda is telling Luke, you know, his, his X-wing has fallen into the swamp and, and he's telling him, hey, you can get it out. I've just been training you to do cool flips and like balance rocks with your special gift. It's amazing. Come on, you can do it. And, and Luke says, no, this is different. Like rocks are one thing. The next wing's a whole, a whole other category. And you're just like, no, there's no difference. So he's like, okay, I'll try it. He tries it and he's like, oh, I failed. You're, this is impossible, Yoda, dumb. And he sulks away like a petulant little child, right? And then Yoda just kind of gets there all calm and zen and he goes, right, right. And it's done. And it's this amazing moment. The music swells. And then Luke comes up and says, oh, I don't believe it. And then Yoda goes for the jugular. That is why you fail. Stone cold killer, right? Burn. Oh, Jesus doesn't do any of that. He doesn't berate his disciples for their lack of faith. He doesn't do it for them. He asks them a question. What do you have? As if to say, why are you so worried about what you don't have? Go and find out and bring me what you do have. And of course, what they bring is totally inadequate for the task. Five loaves, two fish. But Jesus uses what they have, not what they don't have. Jesus isn't asking them to come up with a master plan. He's not asking them to come up with a program for compassionate distribution. He is asking them not to muscle through on their own power. He is asking them just to trust in his power. Their food, which is woefully inadequate for the task, Jesus blesses it, breaks it, and then he puts it right back in their hands and says, Go. And when they go, it is more than enough. His power works through his disciples. The, the, the funny thing about this miracle is it is totally ambiguous as to when the multiplication happens. You don't get the sense that they're out there carrying around this ridiculous amount of bread, but it's just when they go out and they distribute it, more than enough appears. 
They go and Jesus provides with what they bring him regardless of how inadequate what they bring him is. If you want a picture of what faith looks like, look here. Uh, it was great having Ben uh, Willis, Wills out here a couple weeks ago uh, to hear about what God is doing at Peace Prep. And this last week, a few of us from All Souls got the chance to, to go out there and tour the facilities and meet the staff and just hear an amazing story about what God can do if somebody is just willing to go and show up with whatever they've got. To trust that no matter how inadequate that is, God's going to use it. So I invite you sometime to go there, check it out, go see what God is doing. And I do that because I think so often we think that Jesus is asking us to do all this stuff with our own gifts, with our own charisma, with our own strength, on our own timetable, with, with whatever we've got within us. But the story of the church is Jesus doing more with inadequate people who respond in trust and obedience to his call than they could ever do by themselves. These flawed, ordinary broken people who know that it's going to take something outside of them. We have a mission here at All Souls that we are never qualified to complete. I mean, it looks like becoming a community of grace and a culture that is always looking for somebody to blame, a, a community that's called to honor God's call to rest in a culture that prioritizes sacrificing yourself on the treadmill of exhaustion to get ahead, uh, a, a people who are engaged in a culture that offers an endless supply of distractions, a people who are marked by what they can contribute in a culture that is a zero-sum game world of consumption and acquisition, a people who embody Christ's mission of reconciliation in a world that is as polarized and divided as any in my lifetime, practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. Anybody feel up to that task? thing is, Jesus is not asking, how do you feel? He's asking, what do you have? And faith is going out with what you have, even if it is as small as a mustard seed and trusting that Jesus is more than enough. His work is bringing shalom, of, of seeing heaven invade earth, of, of working toward the renewal of all things. That is something that he can do in his power, something only he can do. But because he is compassionate and because he is loving, he calls us to join in the recovery of the world. It's impossible. But he'll take what you have. He'll bless it. He'll put it back in your hands and say, get going. It's going to take a miracle. It always has. He's never looking for your power. He is asking for you to trust in His. And He does not promise that it's going to be easy. But He promises to be with you. And He promises that there will be more than enough. Jesus, with this crowd of 5,000, He takes the bread. He blesses it. He breaks it. And in Mark 14, he takes the bread. When he's gathered together with his disciples in the Last Supper, he blesses it and he breaks it and says, this is the shape of my revolution. It looks like the cross, my body broken for you. 
And Jesus will look at his enemies and he will bless them as they mock him as he breaks on the cross. In blessing and breaking, he has opened up us for us a way to experience the grace of the Father. Jesus is the shepherd king who hosts at God's table and who prepares a place for us in his presence. He's not the king that anyone expects. He's not the one who comes to conquer by force. There will be judgment, but that judgment will fall on him. He is the one judged in our place. So we can escape God's judgment and be welcomed to the table. He is the promise of the bread that was broken for all of us. 